All right, Romans chapter 3, <clears throat> verse 21 through 26. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And Father, we do thank you for this word. We ask that you would would lead us by your spirit, Lord. Help us to have understanding of of the significance of this passage. And it's in Christ's good name, I pray, amen. So we kind of enter into like the hardest kind of preaching for me. Like, I hate this. Um, This has been a terrible week for me, not just because Melanie's in Hawaii, but, but it's like because last week I was supposed to just cover... Genesis 24, but because of the uniqueness of that chapter, it's one way to put it, um, I had to cover sort of the, the, the whole of the section that we were covering in Genesis, which sort of left a blank spot. And I've kind of mapped out the whole year, so I don't want to redo the whole Word document to start Ephesians, because I've already slated Ephesians to start after Easter. So I'm like, okay, we'll just do three weeks kind of focusing on Easter. Next week is Palm Sunday, and then there's Easter, there's Good Friday, We'll sort of look at this. But then this week, it's like, well, what, what, what do I cover? And I hate it because I'm used to like, I just, like, we're going to go through a book of the Bible and we just go line by line and I don't decide what comes on Sunday. It's just what is on Sunday is what I'm going to teach on. I'm not going to be able to see Bud over here, so I'm going to have to like, you know, like, I want to make eye contact in case he's like any conviction that's coming from God to make sure he knows <laughs> that God is like looking at him. <laughs> it's like, now Bud's like Sunday school kid all straight and... Um, but so like in looking at sort of, uh, like, what are we going to do this week was horrible. Like, I'm just like grappling all week, like flipping through the Bible. Like, what am I supposed to preach on? What am I supposed to cover? And looking at Easter, really Easter is something that we should be celebrating day. Like we, like if you know Christ as your savior, the resurrection of Christ is, is something that, uh, affects your life daily. And, but, but seasonally, as in our culture, Easter is a thing. And so now taking like the, the three weeks of like, why is Easter so important? Why, why uh, do we take the time annually to sort of uh, to, to, to reflect and, and to look at this? And I think that the first and the most significant thing in this is we need to understand our need for a Savior. We need to understand our depravity, our true situation, and, and unfortunately, so many of us uh, in the United States and the world humanity, we really don't understand how bad our predicament is. Like, we think that we're much better than we actually are. And so today will be uh, one of these passages that my prayer is that first and foremost, we understand how bad our situation is. 
Because once we are in that place, and then we look to who Jesus is, suddenly the good news becomes good news. But in order to get the good news, you have to understand the bad news. And, and this passage, uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, Dr. Henry Morris, um, he, he said that this is the most important paragraph that has ever been written in human history. Like not even in, not just, most scholars will say this is the most important paragraph that's found in Romans, which the Romans is a book that you can drown in. And I'm like, why am I choosing this like five, like why am I doing this today when, um, most scholars will say this is like the hinge of all of Romans. Dr. Henry Morris says this is, this is the paragraph. If you could only read one paragraph in your whole life, it, this is the paragraph that you would need to, to read and study. Uh, because it's so significant, there's so many uh, deep theological truths that are found within this passage that uh, we're going to cover today. And so we look at the first two words. The first two words are, but now. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hinge. It's letting you know that, he's, that, that the Apostle Paul is, is shifting his attention uh, from what he said up to this point. There's been basically two chapters or three chapters-ish. Um, that have been sort of covered up to this point. <clears throat> As we look back at the first three chapters, we see that Paul is making this, uh, this case against the sinfulness of humanity, that, that all humanity, we'll see in verse 23, has fallen short of the glory of God. In the first chapter, he looks at sort of the secular person, uh, who I, in my background, I really most identify with. This is the person who there's, there's, there's no God, there's no anything, there's, you are just here for the moment and you're to live the American dream. Uh, you know, he who dies with the most toys wins. Uh, it's all about what you can feel and touch and experience in this life, so have at it. Just have a wonderful time. Then he transitions to the moral person. And the moral person is still distinct from God, but these are the individuals who you have met who we all say, they don't know God, but mm, they are just good people. Like, they stand for right and wrong. They, they, they have morality about them. They have values. But when it comes to God, they would say, well, there is no God, or maybe there's a God. There's something out there differently. And then the third person would be the religious person who Paul most identified with, uh, the, the, the Jewish person who, who lived by the law, set his life apart, everything was governed, that everything that he did, it was governed by, there is a God out there, God has given me rules, and I'm going to take these rules to the nth degree of like, is that a word, I, or I just make that up, but like to the very end, where Paul, when he converts, his big awareness was like, oh man, I'm actually a sinner. I thought I was, I thought I was perfect according. To... No, he says, I was perfect according to the law. And so Paul lays out this huge thing. By the time you get to verse uh, 19 in Romans chapter 3, he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and the whole world may become accountable to God because the works of the law because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. He says, shut it. There is nothing you can say before God. You think you're religious? 
all the law did was to show and expose your sinfulness. The law was never a path to righteousness. It just simply revealed the sinful nature within you. You're a moralist. You think you're good. No. You are condemned before God that the world, humanity, when they stand before the living God, they're silenced. Because our measure of holiness is so distinct from God's measure of holiness. God is outside of the realm of anything that we are. We were created in sinfulness. We sin because we're innately sinners. Our situation is terrible. The first three chapters of Romans, it's super easy to look at the world, and we're guilty of this. You watch the news, you go through society, and you say, oh, it's really terrible. This world is so much worse than it was when I was a kid. Man, the 80s were great. That's for me, that was like, that was Lake Tahoe. When I lived in Lake Tahoe, uh, Anna called me out in the fall. We went to Lake Tahoe, and I'm rolling around showing my boys, and I'm like, they're like, you got to do all this. I'm like, the 80s were different, kids. Like, I got to do a lot of stuff. It was good, you know? And, and, and it's like, no, it wasn't. Like, it's not like, I can't believe your parents let you live like this. I'm like, well, it was good, you know? And it was different. <laughs> like, we can look at the world, and our in, our, we look at the world and we say it's terrible. People are worse today. The society is bad. The kids listen to terrible music and too loud or too quiet or whatever. But the reality is, is Romans turns everything around so you're looking at the mirror, and it's not about the world because the situation within your heart is far worse than anything you see out there. And there should be a bunch of amens. <laughs> like, <laughs> and so he says, but now. He's painted the picture. It's dark. It's bad. There is nothing that you can do before God. But now, apart from the law, the Mosaic law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So he, this, this new thread emerges, the righteousness of God, the right standing of God, God's perfection. God is without any blemish. He's without sin. He's out without any defect. He is perfect. He is right in everything that he does. And so this idea of God's righteousness is sort of presented. And this will be a thread that we follow through the next few verses. So he says, concerning the righteousness of God, he says, it's a part distinct from the law, the Mosaic law, the first five books of the Bible. This is what governed the Jewish people. He says God's, God's righteousness is apart from that. The righteousness of God is not found within the law. The righteousness of God is outside of everything that he created. He says it's been manifested. It's now been seen. I believe that, he, that we see this manifestation in the person of Jesus Christ, that he came, he embodied uh, God's righteousness uh, John would say that if you wanted to see the Father in heaven, all you need to see is the Messiah, and it's a perfect, or he is a perfect manifestation of the perfection of God, his righteousness, his, righteousness, his holiness. Everything that we could possibly take in this life is, is held within the person of Christ. And so he's saying the righteousness of God appeared apart from, distinct from the law, being manifested, revealed to us, being witnessed by the law. So the law testifies toward Jesus. And then he says, and the prophets. So you have the first five books of the Bible, and then you have the rest of the Old Testament, which they refer to as the prophets. So both the, old, the, the whole of the Old Testament is a, is a witness on the stand saying, Jesus is perfection. He is the righteousness of God. Verse 22 
even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. So as we look at this sentence, I want to sort of take out some words. Don't freak out. I'm going to put them back in there. But to to follow the thread of thought here, what he says is this righteousness of God, which has now been observed and testified by the Old Testament, this righteousness of God is for all. Huh? Like, this is huge. So how can this possibly be? He's saying he's made his case that we as humanity are utterly sinless. There's nothing that we can do to, to get right with God. There is nothing in our capacity. We are utterly helpless. And he says that the righteousness of God has been manifested, is now visible, and it's available for all. Huh? How can that possibly be? He says, for those who believe. Believe in what? Through faith in Jesus Christ. That suddenly through this appearance of Jesus Christ, his perfect life, his death on the cross, his resurrection three days later, the good news was presented. That if you trust in his work, that he was your substitute, that he stood in your place for the wrath of God that was to come, there's an exchange. Why He doesn't cover here, but he's implying, and we don't have time to go through all of Romans right now, but there's this idea, this theological term of Christ's righteousness is imputed to your account. It means it's credited to your account, though you did nothing. And your unrighteousness was imputed to Christ's account, that he absorbed the wrath that was due me and you. This is huge. This is the good news that's being introduced even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. The bad news is you're utterly separated from God. There is nothing that you can do to restore that relationship. The good news is, is that the righteousness of God has entered into this world. Jesus stood in your place, died for you. And if you believe in him, this exchange can happen where you can have this relationship, this life with God that was not possible any other way. He goes on to say, for there is no distinction. Speaking of humanity, I love the sound of a baby. Don't freak out. Like, I know it's always bad for mom, but it's like, for me, it's like, oh man, there's a baby that everybody's like, wants to see the cute little baby. And it's like, uh, but the parent's like, I'm cool with the baby. So I'm not, I'm not unhappy with the baby. I love babies. All mine are getting too much older now. It's like, so I'm happy to hear a baby. Okay. Where was I? There's no distinction. And it's like, you look at humanity, and it's like, what are you talking about? There's no distinction. It sure seems like when I go to Las Vegas, and I go to Salt Lake City in the same day, there seems like there's a big distinction between people. When I go, uh, not that I've been to Sweden, but in my mind, I'm trying to think of these extremes, from like Sweden to the Congo, it seems like there's a distinction amongst humanity. But he says, for there is no distinction. Now, he's not talking about language or a culture but in the measure of righteousness and unrighteousness amongst humanity. When God looks at humanity, there's no distinction. This is, this is the idea if you're in an airplane and you look out on earth at 35,000 feet, the earth appears to be flat. You fly over the Grand Canyon, you see distinction in colors, but you can't tell that how deep the Grand Canyon is. And I imagine if you fly over Mount Everest, I don't think I ever have. It didn't stand out to me if I have done that. Like, it just would look flat. Like, you might see some changes in color, but when you're really high up, it all looks the same. And this is the idea, that there's no distinction amongst humanity. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
There is no distinction between the total secular pagan individual, between the moralist, between the religious person. There is no distinction. You've all sinned. You've all fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, This guy, Bishop Handley Mule, says this, the harlot, the liar, the murderer are short of it, but so are you. Perhaps they stand at the bottom of a mind, and you stand on the crest of an alp, but you are as little able to touch the stars as they. That's the truth. At the beginning of Romans, Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. This is the bad news. This is what we need to understand. We need to understand God's holiness. As we understand God's holiness, our unholiness comes to light. Like, we are really unholy. Like, we can measure against one another and we can make ourselves look good, but the reality is, in comparison to God, we are, like, Isaiah says it very colorfully, that our righteousness is but that of a menstrual rag. Filthy. We are in trouble this week as I've been like grappling over this, like one sermon that like had a huge impact in American history back in like 1741. I wrote down the date. It was July, July 8th of 1741. Jonathan Edwards, he preached a sermon. He read a sermon. He literally got up in front of the congregation and he just read this, this, uh, this sermon called Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. And there were pictures of of a, we're like a spider dangling over a, a fire just by a little thread. And the only thing that's holding us back is like God's like patience towards us. Um, and this sermon took our nation by fire because what it did is it capitalized on this truth that we all have missed the mark. We all are sinful. We, none of us are even close to earning our way to heaven. The best of us have nothing to offer. And they were brought to their knees through this sermon. It caused the first great awakening within the United States, and there was a revival. And so the point of this is the bad news has to hit us in our absolute core. There is nothing better for you to be rocked to your core when you understand who you are, you acknowledge it for God, and you just, you realize how helpless you are. I'm not exactly sure when I became a Christian, but in the mile markers of my life, I found myself in the SEAL Team 3, my, my cage. It was like my own locker room. And I was there as a young man recognizing this reality. Like I'd been going to church, I'd been hearing this, and then I realized as I was trying to do the Christian thing, that my flesh was so much stronger. And I just remember being in that cage, being utterly devastated by God, recognizing that I was helpless, that there was nothing I could do. I was trying to do the Christian thing. I was trying to, at that point, to live by the quote-unquote law, not of the law of Moses, but the law of the New Testament, in my lack of understanding, thinking that I meant I had to go to church, I had to stop swearing, I had to stop drinking, I had to start tucking in my shirt or whatever. Like, I, like, like, my standard was Ned Flanders from The Simpsons. That was the only like baseline for what Christianity was to me. And so I was trying to be that. 
And I was realizing that it wasn't working, and I was broken. And in that moment, God began to build me up to show me his grace. And so we need the bad news. But remember, we're in the context of God's righteousness for all. And so this, this is the good news. That apart from the law, apart from all this, the, the righteousness of God has been manifested. And this righteousness of God through faith in Christ is available to all who believe. Then he says, being justified as a gift. So now we enter into, like, we understand a gift. We, we understand that this is, like, unmerited faith. That this is something that you give. There's, there's, no, um, there's no expectation of, of giving something back. Like, oh, it's Elena's birthday today. I hope she gets birthday gifts. Like, this is our truth. Like, you don't get a birthday gift when you're a little kid and your mom would say, like, okay, you got, let's see, there's, like, she's eight. So let's just say she gets eight gifts today. That means you're going to have to do, like, eight hours of chores this week to, like, pay back. All right? That's not how gifts work. Like, so we understand gift. But then this term justified is, this is, like, a profound theological truth. Justification. I've heard it said, I don't know that I agree with it, because the problem is when we start trying to define these deep theological truths, um, there's always a breakdown, but it's, it, 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 this one has like a, just as if I've never sinned, if you've heard that before. It's like a, a, a nice little way to like, uh, remember, okay, what does justified mean? Just as if I'd never sinned. Um, I would want a bigger definition than that because you have sinned and you continue to sin because you are a sinner. And if you're a Christian, you're just a, a person who's saved that continues to sin. Like in this life, we have this flesh and you might sin less than you used to, but you still are a sinner. You're just a safe sinner. I'm a safe sinner. So justification, I found one definition that was like half a page. And I'm going to read four paragraphs of this definition or this explanation of justification. I don't even know who, where it came from. It was in my notes from somewhere long ago. Um, so justification can be defined as that act of God whereby he declares absolutely righteous any and all who take shelter in the blood of Christ as their only hope for salvation. That's good. I like that. He continues, or she continues. I don't know who. Uh, justification is a legal term which changes the believing sinners standing before God, declaring him acquitted and accepted by God with the guilt and penalty of his sins put away forever. They continue, justification is the sentence of a judge in favor of the condemned man, clearing him of all blame and freeing him of every charge. Justification does not make the sinner righteous. But when God sees him, quote-unquote, in Christ, he declares that he is righteous, thereby pronouncing the verdict of not guilty. So what this is, this is a legal term, that you are a sinner, you recognize your position before God, that you are helpless, God says, you know what? I love you. I care for you. My son is going to come to be the Messiah. He's going to live a perfect life. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to make an offer for you. That he goes to the cross in exchange for you. 
And the wrath of God is going to be poured out on him for your sins, for the sins of the world. And after this is done, there's an opportunity for you to respond by faith or to reject. The default position is to reject. And that when we believe, it's not that we've done anything good. It's not that we've done anything right. It's not that we have increased our favor with God. It's simply that we are responding to the gift that has been offered to us. And in that moment of belief, God is declaring you justified. That in his eyes, when he looks at you who are in Christ, what he sees is the blood of his son. He sees his son's righteousness in you, and you have good standing because of the shelter that you found in the blood of Christ, as this author writes. It's a gift. This is overwhelming. It's almost too hard to, to, to take, to, like, to comprehend in our brains. Like, how can this possibly be? Well, he continues because he knows we're going to get hung up on this. He says, well, by his grace. This is God's unmerited favor. It's not anything that you've done. It's based on his nature, his work, his character. It's by his grace that you stand justified if you've placed your hope in Christ. Through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. Now we come upon another word that, that is a theologically deep word. Um, it's, it's also a word that we, I think, I, well, I don't know if it's a whole United States, but for sure in California, that every time you buy a bottle of whatever, you know, you have to pay extra. Then you only get the money back when you go recycle the bottle, then you get your money back. That's, that's recycling. Um, I'm, I'm not gonna, I should have done it before the service sale. Yeah, normally it's like five cents or whatever. Um, but there's a redemption value so that when you take it back, they give you your nickel back and you're getting back what you earn. So, so this idea of, of redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, it's like God is buying back his creation, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created male and female, everything that was in the world and it was good. And then in Genesis chapter 3, everything changed. And in Genesis chapter 3, the promise of the cross was there, and this great war would ensue, but sin spread throughout all man. And Jesus comes to to provide a redemption payment for that which was his. It's been defined as to release or set free with the implied analogy to process of freeing a slave, to set free, to liberate, to deliver liberation, deliverance. In Christ, we, if you have responded to the gift, you have been bought back by your creator. And it's a wonderful thing. He goes on to say, in whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Another big, you guys are in seminary class today. Uh, Propitiation, it took me seminary to learn how to say this word. Uh, Propitiation is, it, it could be simply defined as like to be satisfied or satisfaction. So it means the turning away of wrath by an offering. In relation to soteriology or salvation, uh, propitiation means placating or satisfying the wrath of God by the atoning sacrifice of God. Now, I don't think we covered this already, but back, I did read it already, back, back in Romans one eighteen. Back in Romans 1.18, Paul starts out Romans with this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness 
and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So this idea of that because of the sinful nature of man, God's wrath is being ready to be poured out. This is the thing that we're most concerned about in our sin is the wrath of God coming because he's a just God and our sinfulness deserves punishment. It requires punishment that this wrath of God is coming towards us. If we skip ahead to Romans 5, 9, we read much more than having now been justified, the same word, just as if I've never sinned, the idea that Christ stood in our place and through Christ we have his righteousness credited to our account by legal declaration, not by our works. Having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. I keep thinking about these pictures of this sermon. Like I was like, I got it on this whole rabbit trail of reading through Jonathan Edwards' sermon. And this was not a seeker-friendly sermon by any stretch of the means. You're reading it, and it's like horrifying. It, it goes against everything that we in today's society, we have a very soft understanding of God. And here we are, standing before the creator in this sermon, recognizing how holy he is. And it's like, we got a real big problem here. We have a huge, huge, huge problem. And we think, well, what are you saved from? It's like, oh, I'm saved from my sin. No, 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 no. You're saved from the wrath of God. Like as Jesus died for you, as his blood was shed, as he was on the cross, absorbing the wrath of God, that if you accept him, you now in Christ have this safe harbor from this storm of God's wrath, that as the wrath of God comes and is poured out on humanity, if you're in Christ, there's safety and security because Jesus paid it all for you. It's wonderful. He goes on to say this was to demonstrate his righteousness. Because the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. You know, this word forbear- forbearance, I think I've always sort of like skimmed over it in, the, in just like reading of Romans. And somehow this week, this word forbearance, suddenly like I don't even know that my thought has been uh, super like formed. But through COVID, COVID happened. And then what did all the mortgage companies start offering? Forbearance. Now, what did forbearance mean? Did that mean that you never were going to make, you never were going to have to make those payments? No, absolutely not. It was, it was the bank saying, we're okay with you not making your mortgage payment this month or next month or the following month or 18 months down the road, but a day will come when you're going to have to pay back every single penny, Right? And so now, like, because of COVID, suddenly this is like, it's like, here's the wrath of God, and it's being held back. And we think, well, I'm a good person. Look at us. Like, we're so much better than the people in uh, third world countries where terrorism's going rampant, and they're doing, they're doing all these horrible things. But look at us. We're good Americans, and we uh, have roads and healthcare, and we're good people. Like, right? Like, living under this false sense of security because God's wrath is being held back. Not that the time is coming where we're going to give an account. This should be a terrifying thing. But I think Satan has so confused us and made us feel comfortable and sort of lulled us to sleep. 
says this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For this demonstration, I say of his righteousness at the present time that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. So I say God is a, God is a good judge. He has to be just. He has to say that punishment is coming to those who have done wrong. And newsflash, you've all done wrong. You have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so if God is going to be a good judge, he has to bring justice. And so for him to let us off the hook, that's not being a just, that's not being a just judge. But God says, I am the judge. And the way we're going to handle this is I'm going to send my son who is sinless, who is perfect, who is God. He's going to take on the form of a man. He's going to live the perfect life. And then he's going to be nailed to the cross. And my wrath is going to be poured out upon him. The punishment that is due all of humanity is going to be laid upon him. And he's going to absorb it in full completely. And then I will be satisfied. Propitiation. My wrath will be fulfilled completely in what is being poured out upon Jesus. So I'm I'm just, and I'm the one who's justifying of the one who has faith in Christ. For those who are outside of Christ, they're going to stand before a God when they die, and they're going to give an account for the rejection of Christ and the gift that was available to them. The Life Application Bible Commentary says this, God maintains his righteousness his righteous character by providing Christ as the perfect and complete sacrifice for sin. While his full justice demanded full payment for sin, he also provided the full payment for those who put their trust in Christ. This is powerful stuff. This is why Easter is such a good day. Like, so as we shift over to Easter, like the, I don't know if the next three weeks are going to like highlight our need for a Savior. Um, but the good news is only good when we have an understanding, even a glimpse of the understanding of the bad news. I, I keep referencing Jonathan Edwards and this, this sermon, hand, The Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. Let me just read you a couple paragraphs to, as we close and transition over to communion. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider over some lo- or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. Let's talk about a hell and brimstone message here. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful and venomous serpent in our eyes. He continues, the bow of God's, the bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains at the bow and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. <laughs> like this is like the violence of God. And the only thing that's holding it back is his mercy and his grace. Peter would say, they're going to mock you. They're going to make fun of you. They're going to beat you and say, oh, where's your God that you say is coming? 
And he says it's only because he desires that all come to repentance that he's holding back his wrath. He says there, finally, on this last little point, he says there is nothing that keeps wicked men at any moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. This is why the Bible screams, like, today is the day of repentance. Today's the day to get right with God. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. And I don't say this to, like, scare anybody. It's just the reality. Just this week, Thursday, I get a call. Or I didn't get a call. I got a notification that a dear friend of mine who's, like, about my age doing amazing things in the SEAL teams, out hunting in Iowa with his son, feels a little short of breath, says, I'm going to go sit in the car to get some rest goes to his car, has a catastrophic heart attack at like 50 years old. It's sad for sure. But whether you die at 50 or 150 or seven years old, the sadness is dying apart from Christ. And so my prayer is that you would understand the gospel, that Jesus died for you. He loves you so much that he would go to the cross and, and bear the wrath of God for you. And what is he asking for you? He's not asking you to be a, a quote-unquote good Christian, a good person. What he's asking you to do is to believe. That's the only requirement. There's not a walking the aisle. There's not a, uh, okay, get yourself cleaned up. There's a, this is the offer that Jesus made a sacrifice that was sufficient for you to get right with God. All you have to do is respond in faith. And as you respond in faith, you're sealed with the spirit. You're justified before God. He declares you righteous, not that you're righteous, but that Jesus's righteousness has been credited to your account. And in him, you can have a relationship with the father who loves you, cares for you, wants the best for you. And so my prayer is, is that if you're somebody who's auditing Christianity, that you would reach a place where you could find yourself at peace with God, that you would say, Lord, I, I needed this today. I needed to be reminded of what you have done for me. I needed to be reminded of this relationship that you've made available to me. I've been too lax in my relationship. I haven't surrendered all to you. You've given everything for me and I've only given you enough to get fire insurance, and I need to give you more. I need to recognize that you're worthy of everything I have, everything that I am. And so we're ending with communion. And if you have your Bibles, please turn it with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 33, um, Paul begins to talk about the Lord's Supper, this, this symbol of the cross and its significance. And in verse 27, sort of the last half of the verse, Paul writes, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he, he is to eat the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep, that means died, 
or are dying. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we would not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Um, so, so the first part of communion uh, is just to hold the elements, to, to close your eyes, and like the elements are going to go up, but just to sit there and, and to, to acknowledge before God, Lord, these are areas that I'm, I'm holding back from you. These are areas that I know I'm in sin that I need to confess. Lord, these are, these are areas of sin in my life that I have struggled over and over and over again, and I can't seem to be set free from the bondage of this sin, and I need your help. And so I'm going to ask the, the team to come forward. They're going to pass the elements out. And during this, this first time, just simply take this time to be quiet before God, to confess your sin, to ask him um, just to show himself to you. Father, as we just seek to examine our own hearts, Lord, I, I recognize over the years of following you, I, there's a range of emotions, Lord. I, uh, the, the feelings of being beaten up over habitual sins that... Um, seem to have the power over you, Lord. Our, I remember um, those days and, and how Satan can use that to, to use it against us. And Father, I just pray for those here, Lord, who are struggling with sins, present tense, things that they're doing, that they know are wrong and they desire to stop and that they just continually fall into the same thing. Father, I pray, um, Lord, that you would, by your spirit, Lord, help them, Lord, to overcome these things that are, that are holding them back in their growth and their relationship with you. It is a, a frustrating and painful place to be. Uh, but we know that in Christ there's victory. And Father, these days in my life, I I feel like I I identify more in the later um, section of Romans, Lord, about the religious people uh, feeling that through my own good works and my good deeds and living the good Christian life, that I um, am justifying myself and um, that I'm doing anything that's of worth based on my own abilities. And Lord, I thank you for this first three chapters of Romans, which levels the playing field and reminds us um, that the only thing that we bring to the table with you is our sin. And we are in desperate need of you. And so, Father, as we hold these elements, I am grateful, Lord, for your patience with us. I am grateful that as the Apostle John reminds us that as we confess our sins, you cleanse us and you restore us. We thank you that our relationship with you isn't based upon works. It's, a base, it's based upon your mercy and your grace, your love and care for us. We thank you that you have sent your spirit to 
to indwell us, to seal us, Lord, to lead us, to convict us, to guide us day by day. We thank you, God, that when we sin, when we miss the mark, I thank you for that conviction of guilt, that conviction of wrongdoing, that conviction of uh, not honoring you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help our consciences to align with your spirit and that we would be uh, better equipped to avoid certain situations that are tempting, that, that stumble us into temptation. We pray, Father, that you would help us to confess uh, to you uh, quickly, to those we've wronged quickly. Uh, but we long for that day, Lord, when we can stand before you face to face, free of these sinful bodies, Lord. We long uh, to experience true righteousness that will only come in a day future. We love you, Lord, and it's in Christ's good name. Don't, don't take your elements yet. I just want to go over what we're holding. In verse 23, Paul writes, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, for that the Lord Jesus in the night which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so this was the Passover meal, a, like a common meal for them. And so we have the little broken cracker that's gluten-free for those of you who are concerned. Um, but but it's, a, it's a picture of his body that was broken. It's a, it's a reminder, it's a symbol of the wrath of God that was poured out upon him. And he stood there as a substitute for us. So this broken cracker, it represents what should have come us. But if you're in Christ, he absorbed it all. And the wrath of God was satisfied through Jesus' body on the cross. The, the juice he would continue, or the, the, we have juice, but it was wine. In the same way, he took the cup, also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so this is the, the reminder of the, of the new covenant that what Jesus did was once and for all. Like, he's not continually making sacrifices on our behalf. It was finished. It is finished. And this is a reminder to us that in him we're pure, we're cleansed. We stand in the harbor of the blood of Christ, and there's peace there. And so this is to remind us that we're not to continually beat ourselves up. Jesus made the sacrifice you're good. You're good. Satan tells you, hey, do you, Gunner, do you remember when you did this? Yeah, I remember that. You're not worthy. I know I'm not worthy. Jesus paid the penalty for me. I only stand in his worthiness, not in my own. And then the part of communion that is so overlooked is verse 26. So for as often as we eat this bread and drink of this cup, we're to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord, as he ascended into heaven, he left us with the commission to go and to make disciples. So as we take communion, we remember what Jesus did for us. We get right with him, but we're also reminded of our commission to go, therefore, and make disciples. Maybe you're not an evangelist. Wonderful. I'm not either. Like, I love evangelists. I'm not one of them. I, like, that's just not me. But for those of us who aren't evangelists, this is like our Super Bowl season. 
because like during Easter time, it's like so easy to invite people to church. You're not even like doing the evangelism. You're just saying, oh, you're looking for somewhere to go to Easter? Come to Easter. And they'll hear the gospel. And you can be used by God to be an evangelist because the gospel will be presented. And so with that, let's pray and take the Lord's Supper. Father, we are so grateful for your body that was broken for us. We thank you for uh, the eternal covenant that, um, that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection was a one-time thing, that it was sufficient. And in him, we can stand complete. We thank you for the juice that we drink here, Lord, to remember this eternal covenant. We thank you that, um, that through his death, we can have a secure relationship with you. Um, our, our relationship, our assurance with you isn't based on our work. It's based on your work on the cross. And so, Father, we, as we um, just thank you. We pray, Lord, that as we take this today, um, Lord, you would help us to be renewed day by day in the understanding of this relationship with you. We pray that you would put people on our hearts, that you would help us to, to, to take the opportunities that we're given to, um, to share about the cross of Christ and to, to introduce the people that we know and love to Jesus. We thank you, Lord. Uh, you've been so good to us, and it's in Christ's good name I pray. Amen.